Are you in the zone? Oh, yeah. Now I am. <laughs> you know, picking a theme song for a podcast is of utmost importance. Oh, absolutely. And I, I, don't, I don't know what else could get us into the zone. But I needed like, that to get me into the zone. Are you, a little, are you a little tired today, Brian? Last night was horrible. It was rough. Oh, <laughs> all right. Uh, do we do we go public with this? Yes. Or? The Dodgers beat the Braves yeah. in seven games. We stayed up. Me and my two little girls stayed up till midnight. Just yeah. uh, well, and then what makes it worse is my my wife is from L.A. My father-in-law has brainwashed all of my children into <laughs> believing that the Dodgers are the greatest team on the planet. So I'm in this Dodger cave surrounded by Dodger bobbleheads and Dodger memorabilia. Oh, and, yeah. And then I get to watch the Braves Oh, so lose. you guys watched it in, in that, in that yes. Dodger I mean, it was zone. like rubbing salt in the wound. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we stayed up and watched it too. And uh, it was, um, I mean, they were, they were in it. They, they, they had a I chance. Know. They were in it. Yeah. It's kind of kind of a sad deal. By the way, this is uh, That's Worth Repeating. Oh, yeah. And I'm Richard Goff, and you are? Brian Irby. Remember last time you had, like, fans cheering for you? <laughs> yeah. I, I have plenty of sound effects I can throw in. I don't want you to get in the big head. <laughs> yeah, so uh, it's good to be back with you, all you listeners out there, whoever you are and wherever you are. And um and here with Brian, we're going to jump into another quote. And Brian, I don't know, I don't really know how to introduce this one. All we, right. We talked about this a little bit ahead of time. And, um, you know, we, we, we tend to be, we tend to meander back and forth between uh, serious and foolishness. Yeah. Um, and uh, this is one of those just sort of general subjects that it's hard to really find points of levity. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, but maybe that's not what we need to do today, um, and so we'll just kind of jump into to our quotable quote by a notable person, um, and our notable person is Nancy Piercy. Now you may know Nancy Piercy as the author of Total Truth. Oh yeah, remember that book? Uh, a very formidable um, book, huge book. Yeah. yeah. Um, heavy book not just because it's got a lot of pages yeah but the content and the mm -hmm. research and the footnotes and it's just it's a very very thorough treatment of um really worldview and, and ultimately biblical worldview and contrasting that with um what you might just generally say secular thinking and just she's a she's a phenomenal um writer and really a, a brilliant woman let me give a little bio um on Nancy Piercy before we jump in. Uh, so this is, I'm just reading this from a, a little bio that was put together for her. Uh, she, she's heralded as America's preeminent evangelical Protestant female intellectual, author of uh, Love Thy Body, Answering Hard Questions About Life and Sexuality, Total Truth, as I just said, Liberating Christianity from Its Cultural Captivity, which won a whole bunch of awards. And then um, in addition to that, several other works that she's, she's written, um, she's been a visiting scholar at Biola University's Tory Honors Institute. She's professor of worldview studies at Carn University and uh, Francis A. Schaefer Scholar at the World Journalism Institute. She currently, uh, currently she's a professor of apologetics and scholar in residence at Houston Baptist University, a fellow at the Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture, and editor at large at the Piercy Report. Wow. So she's. She's got a few things going yeah. on. This is another thing that caught my attention. 
Um, it talks about how she's addressed staffers on Capitol Hill and the White House and actors and screenwriters in Hollywood and scientists and on and on and on it goes. But then it says uh, she's published 100 plus articles in outlets such as the Washington Post, the Washington Times, First Things, American Thinker, Human Events, Christianity Today, Books and Culture, World, Human Life Review, American Enterprise, The Daily Caller, and Regent University Law Review. And I was, I was reading that, I was thinking, you know, that's exactly one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. That's exactly twelve more publications than I've been published in. But you're still you you're still getting there. <laughs> uh, so anyway, <laughs> that's I mean, we're, exactly twelve. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. So I mean, we're talking about a notable person. Yeah, for sure. She's definitely uh, in that category, and um, just a, a brilliant mind, a very clear, clear thinker. Um, and I thought kind of what we've done a little bit on previous episodes, I'll give you a little warm-up of some of the things that she said um, to kind of give you sort of a, a taste of, of what's driving a lot of her writing and a lot of her speaking. Um, she, she talks a lot about... Um, this idea of the fact-value split. And she basically borrows from Francis Schaeffer's um, first floor, second floor kind of ideas about thinking and, and how on the first floor is sort of empirical facts. It's the realm of science. Mm-hmm. It's, it's what's really most important. And on the second floor is values and morals and you know, spirituality and religion and all that kind of thing. And it's sort of secondary, and it's it's not really what's most important. Mm-hmm. So here's a quote that kind of ties into that whole principle. She says, Modern secular thought has its own dualism. It treats only the physical world as knowable and testable, while locking everything else, mind, spirit, morality, meaning, into the realm of private subjective feelings, the so-called fact-value split. So that kind of is a good yeah. summary of, of what's behind a lot of her writing, regardless of the subject. She's really, she's really kind of going after what is an erroneous split. Yeah. When you think about a biblical worldview, mm. um, we are we are integrated soul, mind, and body. Yeah. So um, she she's she's talked a lot about the importance of marriage and family. Um. And, you know, really when she's talking about cultural apologetics and the foundation of the family, we've talked about this on past episodes. And, of course, we talk about this a lot in general and how important family is and in and, and all things, but in particular in culture and society and in particular for us in the church. But she said this about marriage and the defense of it. She said, the defense of marriage is the defense of freedom, neither of which is obsolete. Yeah. So she basically takes this whole issue of defending Marriage is defined between a man and a woman for life as not just a defense of a political position on marriage, but it's a defense of actual freedom. So she's really into really tying transcendent truths uh, to what other people might want to diminish into political intramural fights or yeah. that kind of thing. Another little quote from her. Um, this ties into where we're headed She says, the more we learn about life, the less plausible is any evolutionary theory that relies on blind, undirected, piece-by-piece change. Mm. So she goes after what is the dominant 
ideology, particularly in the academy, but really it's, it's pervasive in our culture now. And that is sort of a very Darwinian materialistic philosophy yeah. and view of life. And yet this premium that our society places on science as being preeminent, yeah, yeah. the more advanced scientific tools um, and scientific research and technologies that enable more specific, more minute forms of discovery, the more undermining it is to Darwinian naturalism. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. interesting, interesting uh, dynamic there. So, so getting to our quotable quote of the day by Nancy Piercy, um, she did an interview back in November of 2018. And really the interview, it was with uh, Mike Huckabee on his show, uh, his TV show. And it was um, an interview that she did in November, as I said, of 2018, because she had published a book in January of that same year called the Bo- uh, Love Thy Body, Answering Hard Questions About Life and Sexuality. And so in that interview, of course, he's, he's diving into some of these issues that she writes about in her book. And, um, and really she's talking about how this, this uh, fact-value split has even separated us in, our, in the way we think about our physical being, yeah, yeah. our physical bodies. And, and understanding that explains a lot of the current thinking on things like gay marriage or homosexuality or transgenderism or abortion and these kinds of things. Yeah. So in that, in that interview, uh, this is a pretty short quote, so I'll play it a couple of times. And, uh, and then we'll sort of unpack it a little bit. So here's what Nancy Piercy said. Merely being human is not enough for human rights. Merely being human is not enough for human rights. So merely being human is not enough for human rights. Now, what comes to mind when you think of that? Just think of that on the face of it, on that statement. Yeah. Merely being human is not enough for human rights. Yeah. You have to, I mean, I seems, seems contra- it seems like in, in, in inherently contradictory. Is that right? No. Yeah, for sure. But I mean, but you know where, where she's heading and, and what she's getting at. It's interesting. Cause basically the, the, we'll, we'll play a fuller context of this, this question or this quote, this answer to the question that she, she um, gives here, but she's making a, a comment. She's basically representing what is the um, the common view now mm-hmm. amongst those who would be pro-abortion. She's not articulating her own position. She's basically highlighting this is this is the thinking now. And again, she says merely being human is not enough for human rights. So apply that to the unborn, and and where where do you end up? Where do you end up if you apply this this principle that just being human is not enough for you to have human rights. Yeah. Well, I mean, well then, then there's, there's no defense against any, whatever ideology human, you know, entails. And I think think that's what, because I I think you could, I mean, I know where we're heading with this, but you could take this outside of the realm of just abortion. Yeah. It's pretty much if you, if you don't agree with the, the, the norm ideology of the day, then, then you have no right 
to defend yeah this your is rights. true this is true yeah this this basically you could apply this to even ideas about cancel culture i mean it's the same thing hitler did with mm-hmm. you know i mean it's, it's you know if you can if you can make someone not human or even say yeah they may have human qualities but because they don't think like this and act like this then they're below human level right well then then they have no rights yeah interesting it's interesting that you broaden it that way yeah, yeah, it's pretty interesting. All right, let's listen to the fuller con- the fuller context. I think that that will give us a good springboard into talking about some other um, related uh, articles and that kind of thing about this this challenging subject. So again, I'm going to broaden the context of this interview with Mike Huckabee and Nancy Piercy. In the book, you say that secular liberalism destroys human rights. Give us some examples, and let's, let's start with abortion. Right. Most professional bioethicists today agree that life begins at conception. The evidence from science, from genetics and DNA, is just too strong to deny it. But their stance is summed up by a recent article that was titled, So What If Abortion Ends Life? What they're saying is, as long as the fetus is merely human, it's just a disposable piece of matter. Mm. It can be killed for any reason or no reason. In other words, merely being human is not enough for human rights. Hmm. Yeah, that's crazy. Hmm. Isn't that something? Yeah. So I, I pulled the article. I mean, I was like, I got, I got to see this article. She mentions this article. It was published in Salon.com. I don't see the date on here, but uh, it's been, I think, a few years ago. She referenced it. It's entitled, So What If Abortion Ends Life? Yeah. I mean, even the title is a little bit unnerving right yes i mean so what if okay so what what, but if you think the title is unnerving just wait till i read a few quotes this is an article so what if abortion ends life by mary elizabeth williams and listen to how this is the opening line of all the diabolically clever moves the anti-choice lobby has ever pulled surely one of the greatest has been its consistent co-opting of the word life now stop right there for a second. So this is a person who is going to advocate for a position that would flesh out this title, So What If Abortion Ends Life? Yeah. And the accusation against those who would be pro-life is that they're diabolically clever because they've just co-opted the word life. So that's where it starts. Yeah. So basically, there's an assignation on her part against those who would oppose abortion rights as diabolical. Yeah. <laughs> so just think of the twisting of this yeah, yeah. in someone's mind. I'm just going to read a few quotes that I think are just most telling and in many ways sad and unnerving. She says this, I believe that uh, that's what a fetus is, a human life. And that doesn't make me one iota less solidly pro-choice. Mm. So that's that's basically her opening salvo. Yeah, is that I firmly agree. A fetus is not just a bundle of cells, unhuman tissue. Yeah, she is clearly articulating. Which, by the way, there are elements of this that I really appreciate. I, I appreciate the honesty, even though it's really <laughs> sad and unnerving. Yeah, but she says firmly, I believe that's what a fetus is—a human life. And that doesn't make me one iota less solidly pro-choice. So the fact that she recognizes the humanity of the unborn, 
um, doesn't change her position. But she goes on, again, you know, uh, tagging onto that diabolical uh, accusation. She says this, We play into the sneaky, dirty tricks of the anti-choice lobby when we on the pro-choice side squirm so uncomfortably at the ways in which they've repeatedly appropriated the concept of life. So just us being advocates of life makes us sneaky and dirty, playing sneaky and dirty tricks. She says this, here's the complicated reality in which we live. All life is not equal. Now we're going to get to the nub of it. Mm. Okay. All life is not equal. That's a difficult thing for liberals like me to talk about, lest we wind up looking like death panel loving, killing your grandma and your precious baby stormtroopers. Yet a fetus can be a human life without having the same rights as the woman in whose body it resides. So this is what Piercy was talking about. Yeah. Being human is not enough. Being yeah. actually she says merely being human is not enough yeah. for human rights. So this is this woman here is perfectly articulating that. All of life is not equal. A fetus can be a human life without having the same rights as the woman in whose body it resides. She's the boss. Mm-hmm. Her life and what is right for her circumstances and her health should automatically trump the rights of the non-autonomous entity inside her. Always. That's crazy. So think of the emphatic nature of what she is saying. declaring and almost this is what's interesting to me people who are pro-life oftentimes can uh have a uh, base their pro-life sort of beliefs in their faith yeah it's a it's a it's a imago day it's image of god kinds of thinking and 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 worldview that that kind of fuel that uh, and oftentimes and and those people are our kind of people we are accused of being dogmatic and, you know, having, having ideas about transcendent truth. You know, how do we have the authority to claim that what we say is true is true kind of thing? Yeah. And yet here she is declaring dogmatically yeah. uh, sort of a transcendent law. Her transcendent law is this. A fetus can be a human life without having the same rights as the woman in whose body it resides. She's the boss. Her life and what is right for her circumstances and her health should automatically trump the rights of non of the non-autonomous entity inside of her always. Hmm. When we on the pro-choice side get cagey around the life question, it makes us illogically contradictory. Now, when I first heard that, is that is that a thing? If you're illogically contradictory, does that make you, make you logically non-contradictory? <laughs> I, I don't know. That seemed like a strange way to say it. She says, I have friends who have referred to their abortions in terms of, quote, scraping out a bunch of cells. And then a few years later were exultant over the pregnancies that they unhesitatingly described in terms of, quote, the baby and, quote, this kid. I know women who have been relieved at their abortions and grieved over their miscarriages. Mm. Why can't we agree that how they felt about their pregnancies was vastly different, but that it's pretty silly to pretend that what was growing inside of them wasn't the same. Fetuses aren't selective like that. 
They don't qualify as human life only if they're intended to be born. That's a good point. It's a, it's a fantastic point. So yeah. she's basically arguing against yeah, this yeah. notion that for people in the pro abortion movement to say that it's not a human life. Dude, this is dark. She just, I mean, yeah, she just is basically saying, look, let's call it a baby. Let's call it life. That's right. Let's just, just admit that we are killing this, this life. That's right. Because it has no value. That's right. And I mean, she, she, she makes no bones about it. Makes no bones about it at all. Now, here's how she concludes the article. This is the last sentence in the article. Mm-hmm. I would put the life of a mother over the life of a fetus every single time even if I still need to acknowledge my conviction that the fetus is indeed a life, a life worth sacrificing. Yeah. So that, that mentality is what leads to rampant evil. Can you imagine? Take that and apply it to anyone that doesn't agree with what you think and what you believe and live life the way that you think. Cause that, that becomes, that becomes infringement on your health and well being and your, good you know yeah so uh, what what you're saying so so clearly is that this philosophy in a person yeah is never going to be confined to one issue absolutely like not. abortion it's only confined to abortion now because that's culturally acceptable but just wait until the culture accepts that mindset and you can you can justify the murder of Christians. You could justify the murder of a different people group. You can justify the murder of of people that that politically are in a different place. Because if they become, like you said, uh, what I can diabolical mm-hmm. and evil and twisted in their thought, then you become the the hero by murdering them and extinguishing right. their life. What, how, how could we possibly stand by in a society and let diabolical people yeah. like that remain? you got to serve justice. And justice th- is destroying the things that strive to fight against the rights and the well-being and the goodness of of people. Yeah, so, man, that's that's messed up. That yeah. is twisted. And so you think about what we're experiencing in, in our culture today and how rapidly things have sort of escalated to the point that they're at now. Um, it, 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 it's no longer, I think, um, acceptable, no longer wise. Let's put it this way. It's no longer wise at minimum for believers to merely see these kinds of issues as, um, as the domain of liberal people. Yeah. As... Well, those are just that's just that's just you know those people that are that are more liberal or they're more politically liberal or that's just you know whatever. No, what we're talking about is we're talking about something that is demonic. Mm-hmm. It is destructive. Um, it is so unbelievably twisted um, that I I mentioned this to you earlier. I mean, I can't help but go back to the scene in the garden in Genesis chapter three where you you literally have the first two people created by God who had intimate fellowship with their maker Mm -hmm. in a perfect environment in which they could look around, even the text references it, and and even Eve states this, that, that we've been given every tree of the garden. It's pleasing. It's it's good for food. Yeah. It's it's wonderful to the eyes. I mean, in other words, every sensual, you know, pure experience was theirs in that environment. So they had 
empirical evidence. They had direct contact with the eternal God who had made them. And yet, even in the midst of all that, they were led astray by the complete craftiness and twisting yeah. truth and and making a lie sound true mm-hmm. and and more appealing than everything else around them. Yeah. So it's just it's just staggering to me to think about that. And yet, basically, where we are right now, and and I, you know we've talked about this a little bit um, in previous times and. Is we're in a time where, um, basically the 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 masks are off. Uh, there's no there's no more hiding. Mm-hmm. There's no more sort of holding back on these kinds of ideologies. The, the, these kinds of ways of thinking are no longer sort of confined to certain quarters of society that are just more activist in their orientation. Yeah. This is pervasive now, and. I think that with in an age of social media and the immediate instantaneous transmission of ideas um, across vast swaths of the population around the world, you're only seeing this. That that's the escalation. Yeah. You know the exponential es- escalation of this ide- ideology and spreading it. I mean, everybody was teed up. Yeah. People were teed up to to embrace this, mm-hmm. um, to want to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. I mean, that's just apart from the grace of God and the work of the Spirit in and through um, the gospel and, and, and anyone, we're all teed up That's right. for that kind of belief. Yeah. And, so, and so here we are. Now, um, so obviously this is, this is a, 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 um, a sobering kind of thing, but I think it's important for us as believers to really see clearly what it is we're dealing with here. Yeah. And um and it takes shape. So you've got one one article where you've got a person who's writing pretty aggressively to advocate for her position. She she's she's um she's coming at it from the standpoint of having a premise and formulating an argument and supporting her argument with other details and facts. Her intent is to state a persuasive case for her position. Mm-hmm. But this ideology manifests itself in all kinds of ways, even in the, the domain of um, you know, appreciated creativity and artistry. Um, there was an a interview that took place uh, just last week, mm-hmm. and it was with um, Stevie Nicks, of Fleetwood Mac fame. Did you ever? That's funny. I thought Stevie Nicks was dead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I guess not. That would make an interview last week uh, <laughs> difficult. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, fraudulent or whatever. Um, no, she's uh, she's not dead. She's 72. Okay. So um, she's... Sorry, sorry, Stevie. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she's no spring chicken, as they say, anymore, as, as I am not... <laughs> A spring chicken anymore, but um, but nevertheless, in this interview, you, you have this person who has um, you know been a musician pretty much all her life, um, has had you know had fame and fortune, and, and so she she sort of steps into this discussion in a in a very unique but very similar way, and so I kind of thought it'd be interesting to see how she articulates this from the standpoint of an artist. Mm-hmm. The interviewer, 
Uh, the interviewer's name is Jenny Stevens of The Guardian, UK publication. So the question, uh, one of the questions she asked Stevie Nicks was this, what would it mean to stop singing? So what if, what if you couldn't sing anymore? Yeah. Really the context of the question, um, I think Stevie Nicks' mom passed away not too long ago. I think she might, it might've been COVID related. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think she lost her voice because of the respiratory issues and that kind of thing. I, I, I can't remember the context of all that, but I think that had something to do with that. And so that's where this question is coming from. What would it mean for her to stop singing? And here's how Stevie Nicks replied. It would kill me. It isn't just singing. It's that I would never perform again, that I would never dance across the stages of the world again. And she pauses and she sighs. I'm not at 72 years old willing to give up my career. Now, don't linger here too long, but I'm not sure being 72 years old conjures up the greatest images of dancing across stages around the world again. It's always funny to me to see these old rock stars yeah, yeah. who, you know, it's like they've retired like seven times, mm-hmm. but they're going on a final world tour yeah, and yeah. they're like, anyway, I'm not going to go there, but <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Um. So she she's basically stating her position that this is, I mean, this is everything to me, which, you know, that's not uncommon. Uh, she was asked about her approach to spirituality, and she says that for all her fears about her career, she, quote, um, some people are really afraid of dying, but I'm not. I've always believed in spiritual forces. I absolutely know that my mom is around all the time. So that's her spiritual, yeah. you know, kind of sensibility there. So... This is where it gets uh, into sort of our subject matter. Isn't that kind of scary, though? Can you imagine? <laughs> I mean, that's your belief that there's dead people around you all the time. Yeah, like, that's right. <laughs> isn't that like a horror movie? Spiritual forces. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's all you need. Uh, so in, in, toward the end of the article, uh, the, the, the interviewer and writer of the article says this, Women's rights have been on Nix's mind since the death of her hero, the U.S. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Can you imagine <laughs> that's your hero? So I'm sitting there thinking, okay, wait a second. I was like, Superman, no. Yeah. Like. <laughs> I, wait, Stevie Nicks, Fleetwood Mac, you know, rock and roll star, band, whatever. And her hero is a Supreme Court justice? It's yeah. like, really? <laughs> okay, whatever. Um, so she goes on. Uh, the death of her hero, U.S. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, last month. So this is a quote from Stevie Nicks. She says, abortion rights, that was really my generation's fight. If President Trump wins this election and puts the judge he wants in, she will absolutely outlaw it and push women back into back alley abortions. So there's her political yeah. statement or whatever. But that's not the that's not the main point that I, I wanted to get to. This is the backstory. Nix terminated a pregnancy in 1979 when Fleetwood Mac were at their height, and she was dating the Eagles singer Don Henley. What did it mean to be able to make that choice? Nix says. If I had not had that abortion, I'm pretty sure there would have been no Fleetwood Mac. Oh, no. Now, think of that. That's awful. Like, no <laughs> Fleetwood Mac? <laughs> I mean, I can't, I can't help That's it. That's definitely worth murder. Okay, so if you think... I know. So, yeah. But, if, but if, if, if you think that's... I mean, that's enough for us to just stop and comment on. Yeah, yeah. But that's not where she stops. Yeah, yeah. It gets worse. She says, there's just no way that I could have had a child then, working as hard as we worked constantly, and there were a lot of drugs. I was doing a lot of drugs. I would have had to walk away. 
Yeah, that's sad. I mean, you know, well, I I see where she's coming from. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I, yeah. I mean, d- being able to do drugs and being able to play music—that's definitely worth killing a child. Yeah, but see, you don't understand. <laughs> there is there is an altruistic motive here. There, she she is serving humanity, and here's okay. Sorry, I I need to keep you, listening. Don't judge too quickly. See, you're this, right. this is what Christians get accused yeah, of all the time. Right, you're right. We're, we jump to conclusions and we're quick to judge. That's right. All right, so l- let her finish, okay. would you please? Yeah. In fact, I probably need to make sure this you get the whole flow of this. Okay. Because the potency of the argument, you know, is going to be lost. All right, back up. Back all up. Of your Let's start with Fleetwood Mac. <laughs> okay. So she says, I'm pretty sure there would have been no Fleetwood Mac. There's just no way that I could have had a child then working as hard as we worked constantly. And there were a lot of drugs. I was doing a lot of drugs. I would have had to walk away. She pauses. And I knew that the music we were going to bring to the world was going to heal so many people's hearts and make people so happy. And I thought, you know what? That's really important. There's not another band in the world that has two lead women singers, two lead women writers. That was my world's mission. Now are you convinced? Yes. The next see? time I see a 25-cent record at Goodwill of Fleetwood Mac, yeah. I will definitely uh, cherish that. Now think of such a thing. But that's what she's arguing. She's arguing the same thing that that other writer in that article that I read previously yeah. from is arguing. That my life and my sense of contribution to the world yeah. and my sense of significance... Always trumps. Always trumps this inconvenient, Mm -hmm. whatever you want to call it. Call it a human life if you want to be honest with science or or just call it something you had to do away with. Now, here's another interesting little tidbit that I I don't have a lot of, you know, broader information or context on. But as I was reading a little bit about this, um, she wrote a song called Sarah that was about this unborn, aborted child. Yeah. So she even saw that child as a life, a human life that mm-hmm. actually had a name. And in the article that I read, it says that if, if she would have had the child, she would have named her Sarah. And, and both she and Don Henley admitted that they, they, um, that song was written for that aborted child. So think of the twisted nature of all this. So, so now she's 72. She's at a point in life where, you know, she's, you know, seemingly you would be much more reflective yeah. on your life and on decisions you've made. And yet she has found great comfort in looking back at her life and all that she contributed to make the termination, really the murder of that baby, completely justified. Yeah. So there's the artistic view. Yeah. There's the artist's view. So when we look at this, we think about this, kind of a heavy subject. Um, but what are your thoughts on our gospel witness in this kind of environment? Yeah. No, I'm so glad you brought that to that. Because it's so easy to get so angry. Mm-hmm. And it's so easy just to think how evil and, and, and wicked man can be. But that's it. That Christ knew that about me and you, mm-hmm. along with Stevie Nicks and everyone else, even the lady that wrote that article. And it's and and 
Jesus Christ can save anyone. Mm-hmm. He can transform anyone. The most, I mean, think about Saul, you know, who he turned into Paul, you know, that, that was going around murdering people and putting right. women and children in prison and, and Manasseh, man, you talk, that's a great example of the Old Testament. Manasseh, the most wicked king of Judah, who was sacrificing children mm-hmm. in times of uh, hard circumstance to get what they want during that time. And then God changed him. And even though he couldn't change the nation in the short amount of time, I mean, it just it goes to show you that, and I mean, that was great, Richard, bringing it back to that, that, that more than anything, those articles need to compel us to stand firm and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, to live it out, to, to pray for our enemies and to love them. And to, I mean, we need Christ. I think of, as I've, thought about this whole subject, I couldn't help but think of Psalm 139, that familiar to many, that familiar psalm that speaks of the creative power of God and the preciousness of every life that he creates. So I thought I'd just kind of read from it as as a way to kind of wrap up our thinking around the gospel and around um, the, the work of our creator. Starting in verse 13, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. You saw my unformed substance in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. So you have this wonderful praise in Psalm 139 of the God who has created everyone, formed them, had known their frame, Mm -hmm. had numbered their days, had known every one of them before there was one. And I think that Understanding the utter deception that people fall under should grieve us. Yes, we should be righteously angry Mm -hmm. at sin and what it can cause and the havoc that it can wreak, but that should be met with a compassion and, and and a grieving heart for the lostness of humanity and a great praise to the Lord for him saving us out of that. Yes, and and trusting the Lord that that he's... You didn't finish the psalm. You need to finish that psalm. Oh, I'll keep going. Trying to... He opens his eyes after contemplating the the love of God and the grace of God, all the things that you just talked about. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Yeah. Oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Every abortionist will end up in the hands of God. Mm -hmm. And everyone that hates the blood of his little infants that he's weaving in the womb will end up in his eternal wrath. But we need to search our hearts mm-hmm. for anything in us that is as evil as that, which is even our hatred of them, and repent of that, run back to the cross, the fact that we 
we are evil. We are the revilers. And he sent his son to die for us and trust in his timing and in his judgment and his vengeance. Because the flip side of abortion is that every one of those little babies that we are mutilating, they are all safe in the hands of Jesus Christ in heaven. And he's holding them all. Yeah. He takes care of all of those kids. Yeah. And he'll also take care of all those who murdered his children. But some of those murders, he himself will redeem and justify in this life, which is the greatest gift. Staggering. Yeah. Staggering. Well, heavy, heavy stuff, but uh, I think needful for us to, to try to dive into this and see if the Lord would might use it. So we hope that this has been helpful to you and uh, we'll look forward to being together again soon. Yep. Yeah.